Good morning, everyone. Every religion except Christianity has two things in common. First, they attempt to exalt humanity. And second, they seek to suppress the glory of God. But when we're saved by God's unmerited favor, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are transformed from being self-exalting people into God-exalting people. We are changed from people who desire to suppress God's glory into people who desire to express God's glory through dependence upon Him. Ultimately, the debate that occurred in Jerusalem in Acts 15 was about this change. The Mosaic Law was given to show the world that humanity attempts to exalt itself but it is hopelessly unable to accomplish its evil goal. In other words, humanity wants to be all about itself, wants to say, look at me, I'm a pretty good person. And the law was written to show, look, you can't do that. You're not a good person. In fact, the Mosaic Law was like one big achievement test. An achievement test meant to produce humility in the test takers. Instead, because the human heart is so sick, the test takers changed the test and the grading scale. And they used the very test as a means to exalt themselves. I scored a 120 on the Mosaic Law scale. Thus showing their only hope was for God to save them through a Redeemer. The achievement test was actually revealing all of humanity's inability to pass the test. Humanity should humbly depend upon God for its righteousness, not itself. The council in Jerusalem understood that Jesus was the new covenant hope for the world. They understood and clarified that now righteousness was only acquired by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And as we will see today, their final counsel revealed that a new law was the ruling principle for believers from all nations. A law not based on personal achievement. And I am very thankful for that. And you are too. A law that was based on humble dependence and self-sacrifice. A law that avoids personal achievement and self-exaltation because it realizes Jesus is our only hope and it's really all about Him. Despite this change, the transformation from an achievement mindset to a humble dependence mindset does not come easy. Would you not all agree? The only man seeks, uh, the old man, our old man, the flesh, seeks to exalt itself continuously. Even the born-again believer is still tempted to make the flesh about himself or make it all about himself. Even Christianity, we, we have a tendency to think that Christianity is really all about me and about showing me off. How often do we say, man, I... I I just want my testimony to be good. Now, when we're saying that, we're not always thinking 
wrong motives. We're not always saying that. But in fact, it's a very deceptive little line there. When we say, I want my testimony to be good, why? Is it so you look good or so Christ looks good? But all too often, we fall right back into that trap, don't we? Beloved, the born-again believer is still tempted to be on this achievement mindset. So as we see the old ruling principles die hard, don't they? But in the end, for the true believer, we, are, we all end up back where we started. <laughs> where do we end back where we started? We end back at the cross. We realize, you know what? I need God. I need the Savior. I'm nothing. How many times were you crushed by the law this week? If you weren't, then you don't know the law. You just don't know the righteous standard of God. I don't know about you guys, but repentance is a normal part of my life. Can't wait until glory. The fact of the matter is, is to look like Christ is a crushing thing, isn't it? But thankfully, I'm not saved by how good I look on the outside or the inside, right? We've got a Savior. We get to celebrate the Lord's Supper tonight or today. And this is the time to reflect on that grace of God, right? Way to go, Jesus. It's my prayer that everyone in here comes to a better knowledge of the grace of God at work in you today. Today, thankfully, we see the church, the early church, confirmed that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, for all people, all nations, all tribes. This is good news. We saw Acts 15, 1-29 breaks down into five sections. We saw the conflict in verses 1-5, to the consideration in verses 6-11, to last week Peter's sermon, right? And then we're going to see today the confirmation. We'll see Paul and Barnabas' unrecorded sermon. And fourth, the conclusion, James's sermon. Maybe we'll even get to the council. Let's see. So let's continue with a look at the third main section, the confirmation. The confirmation. Look at verse 12. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. We have stated numerous times in our progression through the book of Acts that the events are often descriptive, not prescriptive, correct? That signs and wonders are not normative for today. That the signs and wonders had a specific purpose in mind, or in God's mind, in the early days of the church. Well, this passage is proof of this purpose, of the signs and wonders. Again, signs and wonders are often presented as something in order to help people believe. But that is not the point. The point is to confirm something. To confirm that God's in it. Now, if we read Acts 15, 12 all by itself, we just took and ripped that verse all out by itself, out of context, we might come to the conclusion of this. We might say in our minds, 
If signs and wonders were done through Paul and Barnabas among the Gentiles, why not us? Let's do signs and wonders among the Gentiles, right? And again, this is a prime example of how if you read a verse out of its context, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. I was reminded of that again. Uh, context, context, context. The greatest of these are context. I was reminded of that again this week as I was looking back over that debate I did with Micah a while back ago. That's a very discouraging thing for me to watch. Very humbling every time I watch it. The guy continually quotes scripture after scripture after scripture. But the reality is, is he never used the verses in their context. Not one time. You can make the Bible say whatever you want to say. You want to be, you want to believe in signs and wonders today? You take verse 12 and you rip it out of its context and you say, this is for us too. But the context of this verse is very clear. What's the purpose? Why were signs and wonders there? It's in that spot for a reason. We see here this verse is Paul and Barnabas' defense of salvation by grace alone through faith alone for everyone who believes. Friends, we see God's confirmation of the gospel of grace was miracles accomplished by the original message bearers in the Gentiles, among the Gentiles. That's the key phrase. Look at the verse. Among the Gentiles. The signs and wonders were done among the Gentiles. What this said to the council was, God is confirming that the gospel is for the Gentiles too. That's the point of the miracles. The new covenant blessings are for the Gentiles also. Some have accused cessationists, that's us or many of us, that say that signs and wonders are no longer around, that we are in the anti-supernatural group. Uh, You don't believe in God doing great things and powerful things. Do you understand the opposite is true? We believe in miracles. We're all about miracles. We just attempt to emphasize why God did miracles. In the early church, God did miracles through the apostles and prophets to confirm this dramatic shift from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. How are people going to believe this? How are they going to believe? How are these Jews going to believe that Gentiles can also be included in this New Covenant? They read Jeremiah 31, 31, and it says, Behold, the house of Israel and the house of Judah... Why should Gentiles be included in the New Covenant? The answer is because God's confirmed that it is happening. It's happening. Gentiles are in it. How do we know? Because signs and miracles were done and God says, See, these guys that are telling you this are right. And it confirms. Signs and miracles are supernatural events. They are events that break the laws of science and nature. God only did these when God knew there needed to be a major confirmation of new revelation. For a Jewish believer to be convinced that something major has changed, they needed a special revelation that God was in it and behind it. And God gave it through signs and wonders performed through Paul and Barnabas. By the way, if we... Do the same thing today. Think about this for a second. If we do the same things today and we say signs and wonders are there, it's confirming all those speakers and what they say. I want you to think about what that means. 
Doesn't that look like Satan? Now think about what he would do. Disguise himself. What do you think Benny Hinn? That, what that does is, is when Benny Hinn does a miracle, everybody says what Benny Hinn says is true. He's a false teacher. Doesn't teach the gospel. And it gets our eyes off the wrong thing. Satan is so deceptive. Beloved, this is very clear. These are done to confirm the message of gospel. <laughs> the gospel of grace. And to emphasize that, look at Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2. The author of Hebrews says this. Says the same exact thing. Talking about the same exact subject. The same subject even. Look at Hebrews 2. For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That's talking about what happened with the Mosaic law, right? It was confirmed. Notice, after it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So in other words, the gospel of grace, as opposed to the Mosaic law, were both confirmed by miraculous events, miraculous things, angels before. Here it's signs and wonders. Same thing. So, by the way, isn't this the way it works? If we think about this, if you have more signs and wonders, you have new revelation. And they always have a tendency to hook up together. And so you have people saying, Jesus spoke to me, like in the book, Jesus Calling. Chuck that book. The author of Hebrews is comparing the two covenants here. Like God confirmed first through the angels, now God confirms the new covenant relationship through signs and wonders. When we attempt to make miracles normative, that is normal, we undermine the purpose of the signs and wonders, exalting the message or exalting the miracle over the message, which is the gospel. Beloved, listen closely. The gospel is everything the believer needs. That's all we need. Jesus is enough with or without miracles. Everybody agree? I don't need to see a sign to believe Jesus. He's given me the revelation of God, and that is enough. And he is satisfying, isn't he? By the way, the new covenant relationship is all about being satisfied with him. Jesus is enough with or without healing, correct? Jesus is enough in suffering or trials, correct? <laughs> It's confirmed, now we trust in it. God could do miracles and deliver us, right? Yeah, we know he's powerful. He's all powerful. If he created the world in six days, can he do a miracle right now? Yes. He could make this room explode if he wanted. We could all, every molecule in the planet could just go, gone. They'd all separate if he wanted. God can create the whole world in six days. 
But it, is often, it often brings him more glory, greater glory, when we trust in him with physical perseverance instead of deliverance. As we persevere and we trust him no matter what the circumstances are. And that is the point of Acts 15. The miracles were to say Jesus is enough. And he's enough for Gentiles too. Is he enough for you? That's the question, right? The message of Jesus is hope for all people, confirmed by miracles. Notice second, or fourth, the conclusion. The conclusion. His sermon here that James speaks breaks down into three main sections, the reflection, the confirmation, and the adjudication is how we'll deal with this. Let's start first with the reflection on God's choice of Gentiles through Simon's ministry. Look at verse 14 with me. Look at verse 14. Simon has related, or first start back in verse 13 rather. After they had stopped speaking, James answered saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. James begins with this opening appeal to reflect on Simon's ministry. James is giving a, an affirmation of Peter's words previously, his previous sermon. We see from the beginning that James is respectful of those he is addressing. Notice he calls them brethren. Yet also he does call them to what? Listen to me. James was a leader in the church in Jerusalem. This James was the half-brother of Jesus. Now, if you just stop and think about who this guy is, this is these are amazing words that come out of his mouth. They are, matter of fact, shocking words that come out of his mouth. Remember, the apostle John's brother James was martyred in, verse, in chapter 12. So this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. They both had the same mother as Jesus, but obviously Jesus' father was God and James' father was Joseph. This James is the one Jesus had visited privately after the, his resurrection in 1 Corinthians fifteen seven. It's recorded. James had probably rejected Jesus up until the point when Jesus shows himself after the resurrection. Now think about what that means. In John 7... It reveals that Jesus' brothers were, in fact, his half-brothers, were, in fact, rejecting Jesus. But after the resurrection, James had become a follower of Jesus, and now he was a leader of the church, a spokesman. This is so encouraging to me, that God, once again, takes a rejecter and makes him a faithful follower of Christ. And not only that, he makes him a leader. Sometimes we look at... Some of our family members are y'all like me, and we think this is the impossible case. <laughs> they are constantly harassing us. They are constantly giving us more gray hairs. And yet by the example of God's grace in James's life, we see James rejecting Jesus then turn, up till probably in his early 30s to now in Acts 15, he's a respected leader of the church. That's so encouraging. 
He was up to his early 30s probably before he got saved. And now he's a leader in the church and he stands up and speaks the truth. Praise God, right? And boy, could James relate with the difficulty of the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. How just think about his life for a second. James obviously was very aware of the law of Moses, don't you think? How, how aware was he? He was raised under it. Mary and Joseph had raised their children to diligently follow the law. They did not raise them to keep it to save them, but they knew the Mosaic covenant and they had the Messiah living in their house. Obviously, they took God's command seriously. What do you think? (laughs) I got God living in my house, the Messiah, God man. (laughs) And he's telling me we got to do this stuff. Can you imagine the sermons that went on in that house? (laughs) And Jesus was there living perfectly the law. Do you understand how crushing that would be for James? I mean, he grew up next to a guy that was fulfilling the law perfectly. Everything he did, every heart action Jesus did, he was hanging out with a brother that was perfect. Now, if you come to our house, we have no brothers that are perfect. (laughs) Everybody's in the Equal Opportunity Center. (laughs) And so there's a little bit of relief in the fact that we're all sinners, including their daddy and mommy. But in that house, keeping the law, there was this guy walking around, and everywhere he went, he did it perfect all the time. You think that would be a little bit of a miserable place to be? I gotta be like him all the time. I bet it was crushing. Not only was James trying to keep the law, he was living with someone, the only one who ever kept it perfectly. Jesus never sinned. He had most likely become a very legalistic man up to the point of crucifixion for Jesus. James had to be legalistic. That's the only way he could have made sense of the whole thing. Think about this. Law was everything to him. Because he was dead in sin until after the crucifixion, he must have been self-deceived completely. He must have thought, I'm a pretty good guy. Otherwise, how could he not have been crushed and begin to follow Christ? So he's walking around at all times thinking, I'm doing this. I've achieved it. At the same time, keeping the law was like a rescuing device for him, in a sense. Now, what I mean by that is he took comfort in his self-righteousness to keep it. In other words, oh, I love rules. I love these rules because I can do them. And look at me, I'm something. And so he looked at rules as A way to be something in this world, despite his brother. So James knew the Jewish life, didn't he? And when Peter probably said, he affirms that sermon, when Peter says in verse 9, 
Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the necks of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? I bet he went, amen. Amen. I got it. I understand that. But notice what James appeals to for his conclusion. He appeals to God's ministry through Simon, the one that had converted before him and followed Christ. This is Simon Peter. James knew Peter as Simon, so he probably called him by the name he knew best. And yet he gives high credit to Simon's ministry. James affirms Simon's testimony is legit by referring to it. James says, in fact, facts are facts. Hey, Simon had told us what God did choosing among the Gentiles a people for his name. James affirmed Cornelius' salvation was done by God's grace among the Gentiles for God's name. Friends, this is yet another example of how the gospel is all about God's glory. This is a small version of Revelation 5. James is affirming God's grace saves people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. James once again affirms God's active role in saving a people for himself. We have seen this countless times in Acts already. But yet again, God takes from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And again, what is the point? James says, in effect, God did this. It's about grace now. It's about unmerited favor now. It's not about how good we are. It's not about passing an achievement test. So with this reflection by James, some edifying truths are reaffirmed for all of us. Our defense of God's work must be done with respect towards our listeners. Everybody agree, right? Our defense should should lean not on our traditions or even our culture. It must lean on God's revelation of himself. And third, our defense should always appeal to God's grace in Christ. Oh, folks, we've got to get this. I've got to get this, too. I was thinking about it last night, just reflecting on this. All too often, we want people in our lives to be us. And we forget that the only reason why we are who we are is because of the grace of God. And we try to get them to be us, and we forget that the only thing that makes us do anything good is grace. Be careful. We all need to be. These same truths are good for all of us to meditate on. So now James points to how the work of God among the Gentiles is consistent with God's prophetic work concerning the kingdom. Notice the confirmation of God's choice of Gentiles in the kingdom. Verse 15, With these words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. This is a paraphrase of Amos chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, what we read in our Old Testament scripture reading. James is referring to a prophecy of the future millennium or millennial kingdom to make his case. 
Now, listen to me, and let me just walk through this. You might say, what are you talking about? Listen, hang in there. If you were an Amil and you read this passage, you would look at this passage and you would say, see, rebuild the tabernacle of David, rebuild its ruins. Oh, that's not really going to happen. That's just symbolic of a new time. But I would argue that, that James is not making a specific, this is this. It's talking about the character of God and what God does in the reference. Not a specific, this is this prophetic word. Do you understand what I mean? I'll, I'll get into it as I explain. Now, if we take this as only symbolic references to the church, I think we miss James's point. I believe James is using a greater to lesser argument to make his proof. In other words, if Gentiles will be included in the coming millennium kingdom as prophesied by Amos, then obviously in the time of preparation for the coming kingdom, then we will be included in that age too now. Gentiles will be included now. Why would he reference the future time for the time of the church? Because if Gentiles are included in the future millennium kingdom, as Amos prophesied, then obviously they are included in the time of seeking the kingdom and waiting for Christ to return. It's the same. It's a greater to lesser argument. And again, he's not saying that when we build the church or that God's building the church and Gentiles are being included, the ruins are being rebuilt. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying this symbolic way. He's saying that in this future time, in the prophetic time that Amos is talking about, those things are going to happen. If you read Amos and all that section, it talks about rebuilding the city and the ruins of the city and all that stuff is future. So he's using this as a greater to lesser argument. If Gentiles are going to be included in the kingdom to come, then why not now? Obviously now that's consistent with God's character because he's including Gentiles. How can they go into the kingdom unless what? They've been saved. They've got to be there. It's part of it. James' argument is clear. Ultimately, this, final, it, this is the final word on the subject. If God's word confirms the inclusion of Gentiles by grace, that's the final word. <laughs> And I love how this finishes. Think about this. This is exactly the way it should be. You've got Peter talks about the experience of the Holy Spirit and what he was doing. Then there's confirmation of miracles. And then James speaks and says, that's all true. And he says, and God's word says so. Done. There's no more argument. God's done it. God's shown it to be true. And... God said it. End of discussion. The Gentiles are not under the Mosaic law. That's a fact. Again, what we've seen in these three witnesses is that Gentiles are included in the blessings of the new covenant and not by keeping the Mosaic law. So, lastly, James gives his judgment on the matter. He gives us an adjudication concerning the Gentiles in the new covenant. Notice in verse 19. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols, and from fornication, and from what is strangled, and from blood. 
For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogue every Sabbath. Now, folks, this passage, this little section, I've read it numerous times in getting preparation, and it is one confusing little passage the first hundred times you read it. As you read it, you're like, what? He says, don't keep the law, but keep these four laws, because after all, this is what Moses said. Didn't he just say that we're, they're not, and they're going to be included, and Peter just said, don't put that yoke on them, and yet he says, keep those four laws. What's he doing? <laughs> Jesus hands down, or Jude, James hands down his judgment. James, the Jew of all Jews, says, we must not trouble those who are turning to God. Those who are repenting and trusting in Christ are not supposed to be under the Mosaic law. James is clear that keeping the law of Moses is not required for New Covenant Gentile believers. However, there's this conjunction in verse 20. (laughs) But, the conjunction but is not meant to totally reverse what he previously said. It's not this, ladies and gentlemen. He's not saying... Don't keep the law, but keep the law. Don't keep the law, but keep the law. Wouldn't that be confusing? If you read it wrong, that's what you see. But that's not what he's saying. There's two observation questions from this part of James' sermon that stuck out to me. First, Why does it appear that James says that repenting Gentiles are not to be troubled by law-keeping, but then tells them that they should follow parts of the law? Is this a contradiction? That's the first question. Is this a contradiction? Second, how does verse 21 help James's argument? When it says, it starts with four, and four is therefore what? A reason, right? It's meant to be an explanation of the previous verse. So how does this fit together? At the first reading, it might appear that James is saying, keep these four commandments of the law of Moses because the law of Moses is being affirmed every Sabbath. But this is not what James is saying. Listen closely. James is not affirming Mosaic law keeping for the Gentiles. Again, if he was, he would be totally contradicting himself. Say, don't keep it, keep it. Don't keep it, keep it. Now, you all know that God is not that way. Does everybody understand that God doesn't tell you, don't do something, do something? That just doesn't make any sense, does it? Now, when you first read it, you might think that, but that's not what he's saying. So what was James saying? He's saying this. Gentiles are not under the Mosaic law. They are under a whole new economy, a new law, the law of liberty. Walk in love. Walk in grace. Yes, there are moral requirements in the new covenant, but they are privileges of being set free from bondage to sin. It's a whole different thing. So what in the world does verse 21 mean? For Moses... From ancient generations, as in every city, those who preach him, 
since he is read in the synagogue every Sabbath. What James is emphasizing here is the motive for abstaining from the four things he mentioned before. He's giving you the motive for why you should keep those four. Okay? And keeping those four are not law-keeping, get God's achievement, way to go, you did it. The motive is totally different now. You keep those four because there are people that are still being taught this law every Sabbath. And you're going to interact with them. The motive is what? Love. It changes everything. The motive for doing those four things is one thing. Love. I'm no longer my own. I think of other people. And so therefore, I'm not going to eat blood when I'm hanging around with a bunch of Jewish people that it would just absolutely curl their hair. It would drive them crazy. Hey, give me a little piece of that rare steak. Please cook it. Come on, just one pork chop. Don't you want one? The motive is very clear. It's about other people. And all of us that are under grace, we understand love, don't we? Why? Because he first loved us. He died in our place. We now have grace. We've been set free. And so the motive is love. You say, well, Mike, and for Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogue every Sabbath. Where is the word love in there? It's what's implied. The implication is, look, you're going to be hanging around people that have grown up under the Mosaic law their entire life. And it's as if James says, look, I can relate. I've been, I have not eat pork, eaten pork chops my whole life. I don't eat these things. I don't do these things. I'm nothing like this. I don't. It's horrible. So the point is this. Tell the Gentiles to understand that Moses and his law is preached to the Jews in every city. And the Mosaic law is read everywhere. So abstain out of love for the potential believers and for the newish, new Jewish believers. This is the same exact argument that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 8. Look over there. 1 Corinthians 8. It's the same exact argument. And Romans 14, but we won't get to that one. 1 Corinthians 8. In 1 Corinthians 8, I want you to notice something. Paul's speaking to the Corinthians, some real pig-eating Gentiles. And he says, verse 1, now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that all, we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, concerning eating, the eating of things sacrificed to idols... 
We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are, are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat it, nor better if we do eat it. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you and you have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he's weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. So by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. That's the point. Now here's the problem. This only works if you understand love. This only works if you understand grace and you are controlled by grace. It's, it's, it only works. The fact of the matter is, is that often we still think that it's all about me. And so people interpret this all wrong. Listen, yes, we have liberty to eat anything and do so much. We can do a lot of stuff. But... What controls us now is something totally different. A new principle, a new guiding principle is what? God's grace, his love. I think this applies so many different ways. I think it applies with what we expect out of our children, what we expect out of our spouses, what we expect out of coworkers, what we do around our coworkers, what we do every place we go. When was the last time you decided a meal based on what somebody else would think or whether it would cause their salvation to help or hurt, whether it would edify them or not? All too often, I don't think we can even get past the little things. The little things. We are selfish people, aren't we? Way too selfish. Paul makes it clear eating food that was sacrificed to idols is not by itself a sin. In other words, hey, yes, it was sacrificed to an idol, but he says, it's not a real God anyway. Give me that food. It's okay. I can eat that food. Now, does that contradict Acts 15 when he says, abstain from it? Only if you don't understand what, Paul, what James is getting at. But James is making the same point, and Paul makes the same point. And that is, consider, consider others, and consider others' conscience when you choose to do things. 
We must eat only what will not hurt another's conscience. And again, I bring up the drinking thing, alcohol, and I've said this, it, it never fails. This is the question that's asked so much. Okay, here we go. Back to if pot's legal, if marijuana is legal, are we going to be allowed to smoke it? If alcohol's, you know, it's I'm 21, why can't I drink alcohol? I, I, I have, you are free. How about that? I think you're actually free to do that. Both of them if it becomes legal, even marijuana. But I'll tell you what, if you're thinking that way, you're thinking backwards. You're thinking the opposite of what's right. I think you need to think on other people. And for me, after doing my funeral for my alcoholic uncle, I will never drink another sip of alcohol by God's grace. Is it because I don't like alcohol? That has nothing to do with it. Is it because I'm free? I'm not free to do it? I can drink it. But I don't want anybody to think that by me drinking alcohol, that's something that I should make a regular pattern of in my life. Especially if it could cause somebody to die because of it. Is that wrong? I think that's the point. But we don't choose things like this all the time, and I admit, I don't do it all the time either. The law of liberty calls us to put others above ourselves. Grace calls us to think of somebody else, not yourself. Look over at Galatians 5. I'm going to close with this. I want to get into the Lord's Supper. Grace transforms, doesn't it, folks? Changes everything. By the way, I'm not going to judge you if you drink alcohol. Okay? I'm not going to say, you old sinners. <laughs> I might ask you the question, though. Why do you do it? I might ask you that question. And I might ask you the question when you, if, if you have little children running around your house and you got a, a bunch of beer cans all over your house, I might ask you, do you think this is helping your kids or hurting your kids? I might ask you that. Let's look at Galatians 5.13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. And the word, the one word is not given, it's given in a statement. In one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, how do you do this? Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh, for the flesh sets its desires on the Spirit, against the Spirit, 
and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Praise God, right? Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality and impurity and sensuality and idolatry and sorcery and enmity and strife and jealousy and outbursts of anger and disputes and dissensions and fractions, factions and envy and drunkenness, carousing, things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Sure am thankful we're under the grace of God now, not the law of God. If it's about achievement, we'd all fail, correct? But praise God, we are under grace and we can now die to self and take joy in it and see it as a privilege. Let's pray. Father, we thank you (coughs) for your word. We thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ. We thank you for the gospel, for it has made (coughs) possible a relationship with you that Jesus came and died and rose from the dead. And in light of that, we can now live. He accomplished what we could not accomplish. He achieved what we could not achieve. Also that we could have His righteousness. We praise You for this. We thank You for this. We ask You to help us apply these truths to our lives. And help us to live led by the Spirit of God. May Your Spirit... Produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control in us. Please, Lord. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.